You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you would open your Bible, please, at Isaiah and chapter 53. Uh, We looked yesterday at the messenger, what it means to be a faithful servant today. This afternoon, we're looking at the message that we are entrusted to bring to the world. Isaiah and chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked— And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The context, brothers, in which we communicate the good news of the gospel is always one of unbelief. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? A culture of unbelief should never surprise us. Unbelief is the default human response to the gospel. In every culture, in every generation, the human heart is wired for unbelief. It is the first effect of sin in us. That's why the apostle says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In the most profound sense, the world never changes. So, unbelief should never surprise us. It is the normal human response to the gospel. But despite the culture of unbelief that surrounds him, Isaiah declares the good news. He proclaims the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are seven things that I want us to see in this wonderful and most familiar chapter of the Old Testament Scriptures. Seven things about which we must speak if we would pursue gospel clarity. And that's my title for the message in this first session this afternoon, Pursuing Gospel Clarity. Pursue gospel clarity first by speaking about Jesus. The most obvious statement of all. We know that this whole chapter is about Jesus because in the New Testament, in Acts in chapter 8, we have the story of the court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, evidently a quite brilliant man who had come to Jerusalem and had a copy of the prophecy of Isaiah that we have open before us, and he's reading it in his chariot, and God sends Philip, and Philip comes up and meets uh, with uh, the chancellor, um, who asks, uh, and then uh, he asks Philip, uh, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this uh, about himself or about someone else? And he's reading from Isaiah and chapter 53 that we have just read together this afternoon. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture told him the good news about Jesus. Um, this marvelous chapter takes us through prophetically the early life of Jesus the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, alludes, verse 9, to the burial of the Lord Jesus, the reference to a rich man uh, who comes forward at his death. It points us, verse 10, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us to what the ascended Lord is doing in justifying many, verse 11. And it even points us to what he will accomplish in his ultimate triumph when he returns in power and glory in verse 12. Beginning with this scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, Philip told the chancellor there in the desert the good news about Jesus. Pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about Jesus. Second, 
pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about holiness. Hold forth, brothers, the beauty of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he grew up before him as a young plant. How does a young plant grow? <laughs> Very quietly. I mean, you hardly notice it. You put it in a pot, you put it on the windowsill, and it doesn't attract much attention. We live in a world of celebrity. A celebrity is a person who evidently attracts a great deal of attention. There's nothing like that whatsoever in the early life of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the single exception of the occasion where he answers questions in the temple. The Bible records nothing remarkable about the early life of Jesus. He did not grow up like a shooting star. He grew up like a tender young plant. I love speaking about this with our young people. They are under enormous pressure in a celebrity culture teenagers who are being pressed as to how they are going to make their mark on the world. How are they going to stand out from the crowd? How are they going to change the world before they're aged 18? And I love saying to our young people, I have some really, really good news. You don't need to do that. No one ever had a greater impact on the world than the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know how he grew up? Like a young plant. Luke tells us he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Think about that. Jesus grew in stature. He grew strong physically. He grew in wisdom. That is, he applied himself to learning, grew intellectually. He grew in favor with men. That is, he made friends. He grew socially. He grew in favor with God. He grew spiritually. And what a marvelous thing it is to be able to say to our young people, look, here's how to grow up eat healthy food and get plenty of exercise. <laughs> Develop the capacity of your mind by studying hard. Make good friends and learn to be a good friend to others and get to know God and live in a way that honors Him. Focus on these things and you will be released from an enormous burden of anxiety. And by the way, What's good counsel for teenagers isn't so bad counsel for us as pastors as well. And notice that Isaiah tells us about Jesus that he grew up before him. In other words, he grew up with a profound sense that the eye of the Father was on him in everything that he said and did. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely. We serve and we minister, brothers, before the Lord, the eye of the Lord is on us in private as well as in public. Uh, he is the God before whom all our hearts are open and from whom no secret is hid. We talked last time about the fear of the Lord, and the Scripture says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Or Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. He grew up before him as a tender young plant. Pursue gospel clarity 
by speaking clearly about Jesus. Pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about holiness. Hold forth the life to which a person is called. Without seeing that, no one will ever come to be convinced that they really need a Savior. And then third, pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about sin. Look at verse 5. Isaiah gives us here a fourfold description of our human condition. First, we are defiant— that is, we, he was pierced for our transgressions. And transgression, as you know, is a deliberate, willful flouting of God's law. We want to be our own God. We're determined about it. We want to decide what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. The sinful nature is, the Scripture says, hostile towards God. We're defiant. Second, we are twisted. That is, he was crushed for our iniquities. And the word iniquity, of course, has this meaning of being twisted. And people, of course, will ask, is that really true of me? And we will ask, well, don't you know what it is for a cutting word to be on your tongue? And when it's out, you say, where in the world did that come from? Don't you know what it is to find that there are good things you don't remember and there are bad things you can't forget? What accounts for that? Why is it that you would do again something that made you miserable last time you did it? Sin has twisted the human heart so that, as the old prayer puts it, we do what we ought not to do, and we don't do what we should do, and there is no health in us. We are defiant, we are twisted, and we are guilty. Notice the word chastisement. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. This word chastisement or punishment tells us that our transgressions, our iniquities, our defiance, our twistedness brings consequence. The wages of sin is death, and after death comes the judgment. We are all guilty before God. The very sentence of God's judgment hangs over us, so that John says in John chapter 3 and verse 36, that the person who does not believe and does not obey the Son of God, that the wrath of God remains on him. Not, not one day will come, but, but is already hanging over and already there. And then we are wounded. By his wounds we are healed. Now, Isaiah, of course, is speaking about Jesus' wounds here, but he also speaks about us being healed, and people who need to be healed, by definition, are those who have been wounded. And Jesus, you remember, told that story about a man who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. What a description of our spiritual condition that is. Sin has robbed us. Sin has beaten us up. Sin has left us wounded, lying in the road. It has left us believing the wrong things, loving the wrong things, desiring the wrong things, beaten and bruised, no longer having the strength to get up and to pursue the will of God. So here you have a fourfold description of the human condition in all of its need— we are defiant, we are twisted, we are guilty, 
and we are wounded. And Isaiah is telling us that this is why Jesus suffered on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. Pursue, brothers, gospel clarity. Pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about Jesus— by speaking clearly about holiness, by speaking clearly about sin. Number four, pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about atonement. Again, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. Now, here we have the great truth of substitution. And we all know what this looks like. The sports team is doing its best, but things are not going so well. One of the players gets injured, and he can't continue. He comes off the field, and the coach sends on the substitute, and the substitute plays in the place of the injured player. And that is what happened when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. He took our place. He came on for us. He became our substitute. And the great irony here in the words of Isaiah is that the people of Jesus' day thought that God had no place for him. They thought that God was punishing him for his sins, that God struck him, that God smote him, that God afflicted him. That's verse 4. And in a profound sense, they were right. God did strike him. God did smite him. God did afflict him, but it was not for his transgressions. He had none. It was for ours. It was not for his iniquities. He had none. It was for ours. And Isaiah says, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has taken everything that could ever be charged to us and has laid it in its entirety on Jesus instead. This is what it meant for Jesus to become our substitute. God laid our sins on him. Literally translated, Alec Mateer uh, translates it this way, that God has made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. Think about our room in which dirt is spread everywhere, and you get out the vacuum cleaner, and you hoover up this dirt that is spread in many, many places. You thereby gather it all into one place, and when you are done, you empty out all of the muck that you have gathered. That is what God has done with our sins our self-absorbed rebellion, our self-pitying resentment, our self-indulgent laziness, 
our self-righteous presumption, God has gathered it all into one place, and He has laid it upon His own dear Son, Jesus. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, brothers, it should come as no surprise to any of us that this truth of substitution comes under constant attack, century after century. And we hear people saying, oh, this idea of Jesus becoming our substitute and bearing our sins and paying the penalty, of course, it's just a theory. It's a theory of the atonement. And since it is a theory that uh, deals with sin and with punishment in which so many people no longer believe, it is a theory that many people are eager to dispense with and discard. But listen to the words of Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That is substitution. And speaking under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah states it not as a theory, but as a fact. When Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, he is not speculating as to what might have happened at the cross. He's telling us what God has done. And when Isaiah speaks about the chastisement or the punishment that was upon Jesus, he is certainly not announcing a theory. Isaiah is telling us what Jesus endured in our place upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, it is certainly possible for people to say that they don't believe what Isaiah says, I mean, the prophet himself begins the chapter by saying, who has believed our message? But the plain and obvious message of Isaiah is that Jesus became our substitute. He stood in our place. Our sins were laid on him, and we have peace with God because the punishment that was due to us was in God's infinite mercy transferred and laid upon him. Pursue gospel clarity. Pursue it, brothers, by speaking clearly about Jesus, speaking clearly about the call to a holy life, speaking clearly about sin, and speaking clearly about the atonement. Fifth, pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about union with Christ. What a wonderful truth this is. Union with Christ. Look at verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, here Isaiah is looking beyond the cross and into the experience of the risen Lord. And he says, he shall see his offspring. 
Now, this word offspring is really important. Literally translated, it would be seed. Um, Another way of saying this would, of course, be children. Having offspring means that something of your life is reproduced in another person. Something of what is in you is also in them. And Isaiah says Jesus will see his offspring. He, in other words, will bring many children to birth. And when we come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, something of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ comes into us. There is no gospel without union with Christ. This is really important as we pursue gospel clarity. Think about it. We are called to be disciples of Jesus, but Jesus lived the perfect life. What hope is there of us following his example? It's hardly surprising, is it, that people would hold back on commitment and say, well, following Jesus is clearly beyond me. If I commit to try and do this, it will only end in failure. Discipleship is a really important biblical category. But if discipleship is the only category that you have for speaking about the Christian life, your people will probably soon become discouraged. The good news is that there is more to the Christian life than us doing our best to follow the example of Jesus. Amen? Jesus brings offspring to birth. That is, the life of Jesus Christ is actually in his offspring. That's what gives us hope. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Union with Christ that's essential to gospel clarity. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the believer. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Something of the love and the peace and the presence and the strength and the joy of Jesus are within you by virtue of your union with him. Nourish this life, and it will grow. And this is a wonderful truth, because what it means is that as a believer, you are never more true to yourself than when you are following the example of Jesus, because that is who you are. You are Christ's offspring. And you are never more in conflict with yourself than when you sin, because that is not who you are. You, you are Christ's offspring. So becoming more like Jesus actually goes with the grain of the one who is a believer. The, the, the sinner is being true to himself when he sins, but you are Christ's offspring. And you are being true to yourself as you grow in likeness to him. The more like Jesus we become, the more peace and the more joy we know. The risen Lord will have offspring, and these offspring, like him, are going to live forever. Notice it says, verse 10, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. 
People who have children may live to see their grandchildren, and some will live to see their great-grandchildren, and that is about it. But with Jesus, it is different. Isaiah says he shall prolong his days. Jesus lives forever, and he will see his offspring through all generations. He's prophesying the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because the life of Jesus is in his offspring, what is true of Jesus will also wonderfully be true of us. So he says, because I live, you also will live. The Puritan Thomas Manton has this beautiful comment, Christ's life was not shortened by death, but prolonged, and so shall yours be that have an interest in Christ. Isn't that the most marvelous truth? That when the day of your death comes, it will not shorten your life, it will prolong it. Why? Because it's going to be the entrance for you into everlasting joy. And this risen Christ will accomplish all of God's will. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 10, the will of God is your sanctification, and Jesus will get it done. The will of God is your preservation, and Jesus will get it done. The will of God is your glorification, and Jesus will get it done. Those whose lives are in the hands of Jesus truly have nothing to fear. Pursue gospel clarity. Pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about Jesus, about holiness, about sin, about the atonement, about union with Christ. And then sixthly, pursue gospel clarity by speaking clearly about justification. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, in this verse, Isaiah is moving beyond the death, the resurrection of Jesus into the ascension and into his present continuing work. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing now, he is making many to be accounted righteous. Other translations, of course, use the word justified here, but I think that the ESV is especially helpful here because it reminds us of the meaning of the word justified, which, of course, is accounted righteous. And Isaiah is telling us in this wonderful verse that Jesus is satisfied because his people are justified. Out of Jesus' suffering will come a vast company of redeemed people who are reconciled to God, will enjoy him forever, and when Jesus looks at these people, he is satisfied. Notice that Isaiah makes it clear that we are justified because of the righteous life of Jesus. He says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So, notice that Jesus is being described here as the righteous one. 
He's the one who joined the human family. He is the one who has lived the perfect righteous life that none of us has lived. Isaiah describes him as the righteous one. And then he says, many will be accounted righteous. And so the question is, where does this righteousness that is counted as theirs come from? And there can only be one answer. It comes from Jesus. He is the righteous one. God counts the perfect righteousness of his Son as being ours. We are justified by the righteous life of Jesus and We are justified because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus. So he says, verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore them in his body on the tree. He carried them. Our sins were laid on him, and because they were laid on him, they are no longer on us. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I hang my whole eternity. Now, of whom are these things true? Well, notice what he says. By his knowledge— Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities by his knowledge? Now, there is, of course, debate as to whether this means his knowledge of us or our knowledge of him. Let me just quote to you that E.J. Young says, it is knowledge of Christ on the part of others, he then says, and I quote, a knowledge that approximates faith. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Pursue gospel clarity. By speaking clearly about Jesus, holiness, sin, atonement, union with Christ, justification, and seventh and lastly, by speaking clearly about eternity. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You will have heard, I'm sure, the insightful statement that he who marries the spirit of the age will soon be a widower. If you want always to be relevant, speak about things that are eternal. And Isaiah here is now looking through time to the ultimate triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with the word, therefore. So now he's describing what will come out of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks to the final and the eternal outcome. And notice that there is an I and there is a he in this verse. I will divide him a portion with the many— and he shall divide the spoil 
with the strong. And the I clearly is God the Father. And he tells us through the prophet Isaiah what he is going to do for his son. The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, and I think helpfully so. I will give him the many as a portion. I will give him the many as a portion. In other words, what Isaiah seems to be saying here is that the many who come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are the Father's gift to the Son, which, of course, is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ says repeatedly in John in chapter 17, where he speaks to the Father about the people he has been given. I have manifested your name, he says to the Father, to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Or John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. What a glorious prayer that is. And who are these people that the Father has given to the Son, and how could we know who they are? Well, Jesus tells us so clearly, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There is an I in this verse, and the I is God the Father, giving people, the many, as a portion to his Son. And there is a he in this verse, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, the he again is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it seems most likely that Isaiah is referring here to the strong as the spoil that will be divided. Alec Mateer gives this translation, I will allocate to him the many, and the strong he will allocate as spoil. In other words, at the end of time, there will be two groups of people. There will be the many who are given by the Father as a portion to the Son, and then there will be those who are described here as the strong. They have mustered all the strength that they could to resist the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's what the Lord Jesus Christ personally and directly will do. The strong he will allocate as spoil. The many who come to him are given to him by the Father, and he receives them. The strong who resist him become spoil, and Jesus triumphs over them by his own power. Pursue gospel clarity. Pursue gospel clarity, brothers, by speaking clearly about Jesus, about holiness, about sin, about the atonement, about union with Christ, about justification, and about eternity. What a privilege 
to be entrusted with the greatest good news this world has ever heard. And perhaps one of the things that will come out of our time together will just be a refreshed and renewed dedication that we, by God's grace, will give ourselves unswervingly to a full proclamation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is such a privilege to be a minister of the gospel. Let me end with this brief story and, and recollection. Some years ago, when I was still serving a church in London, the local authority put on a seminar in which they invited people from various caring professions. There were a couple of doctors, there were a couple of social workers, a couple of teachers, a couple of counselors, healthcare professionals, and they had invited two pastors. I was one, and the other was of a much more liberal persuasion. And I think, I think the kindest way that I can say it is that he had an opinion about absolutely everything. And in the course of this day of workshop discussion about various questions, we heard his views on politics, we heard his views on psychology, we heard his views on educational theory, social policy, how to change the school, how to change healthcare, everything, on and on. And I just had an awareness because he was the other pastor and therefore we were associated together. I had a profound sense as the day wore on that the room was tiring of his frequent opinions. And eventually, someone in the group took him on and said, well now, Reverend, <laughs> we've been hearing rather a lot from you today. What exactly is your professional expertise? And he said, well, my work really is to, to, to care for people, and, you know, I, I, I really do a little bit of that and whatever, and trying to be helpful in any way I can. So the questioner shot back, so what you're telling us is that you're trying to do a little bit of what all the rest of us here do, except you're not qualified for any of it. And then this person turned to me and said, and what exactly is your professional expertise? And I said, well, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I believe that God has made himself known in the Bible and that it's my task to help people grasp what God has said about himself so that they may turn to him in faith through Jesus Christ and when that happens, they find forgiveness of sin and peace and power to live a new life and one day to enter into eternal life itself. Somehow they seem to accept that. <laughs> Never forget walking home and thinking, I wouldn't change the privilege of this calling for anything in all the world. Faithful messengers stay focused on the message. Amen? Make Christ 
and all that he has done, is doing, and will do central to your ministry. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father, we are asking that you would renew our commitment to faithfulness to this message that you have trusted to all who bear your name. We count it an inestimable privilege to be ministers of the gospel, and we ask that we may be faithful ministers of the gospel all the days of our lives. For these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory and God's people together said, Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.